Shift is brought to you by Deloitte. The automotive industry is evolving and fast. At Deloitte, we understand the challenges you face and are here to help you respond, recover, and thrive even as you may face the unknown. Our global network of professionals can help you navigate through today's complex issues so that you don't have to go it alone. To learn more, visit Deloitte.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, reporter at the Automotive News and your host. Hi, I'm Leslie Allen. I am the editor of Shift the Magazine. And this is Alexa St. John covering tech and suppliers. Joining us in just a minute or two will be Cheryl Connolly, Chief Futurist at Ford Motor Company. Uh, We will be talking about consumer behavior uh, and some projections about how uh, the auto industry in particular and the world in general all move forward from uh, the current health crisis um, but first, speaking about a future fraught with uncertainty, Alexa, you have a, a story in this week's uh, automotive news about some of these specific developments in the automated vehicle and mobility realm that have kind of been hard hit uh, by some of the ripple effects from COVID. What's, what's going on out there? Pete, this episode is uh, very timely for for the story that I've been working on over the last couple of days. I mean, essentially, you know, the different trends that we've seen in the future of mobility from AV to shared to to EV, um, a lot of those things are now moving into the crosshairs of, of this industry where who knows what's going to happen after this pandemic is over, right? You know, um, technologies that that companies have been promoting for for months to to a couple of years now. All of these technologies that we've talked about on the show or covered at CES just at the start of this year, uh, they could be um, you know called into question. And and we've seen this over the last several days. Um, you know, the headwinds coming into play. Uh, Ford just last week postponed its uh, AV commercial services until uh, 2022. Uh, GM shuttered its Maven car sharing service uh, a few weeks back. Um, And then Ford uh, has also uh, pulled the plug on its Rivian deal uh, for an electric vehicle. Now with that, uh, they said that you know their their Lincoln brand, which was initially part of that uh, part of that partnership, uh, the Lincoln brand still plans to have its own EV at some point, uh, but even that is uncertain. So, I mean, we're seeing a lot of uh, the issues that have already existed in the mobility industry and in the future technology uh, side of the auto industry. Um, they're they're really coming into play. Uh, a lot of that has to do with you know the the amount of capital that automakers and suppliers have. You know, for those that won't be able to to keep investing in some of these future technologies that that won't have returns for a couple of years out, uh, they might shelve or halt some of their projects, like we're seeing. Uh, others, you know, some suppliers or, or maybe some of the more flexible startups, uh, they could be positioned really well moving forward. Uh, it all just kind of depends on on how companies are doing right now. Um, you know, of course, these technologies are still going to be important uh, several years down the line. So it's not a situation where, 
automakers or suppliers or startups should entirely, uh, you know, scrap these plans. It's, you know, definitely if they're able to, they should hold on uh, to investing and developing new technologies, but it will be kind of this balancing act uh, between those who who really just can't afford to wait for that return um, on their investment and, and those who are able to take a little bit of a risk on amid the crisis right now. You know, Alexa, as I understand, there are different levels of risk. Uh, for example, would you say that the technologies that are a bit more out there, say level four, level five, automation might be more in danger than, say, electric vehicles? Certainly. I mean, we're, we're seeing that for the most part, uh, experts say that EVs, it's a it's a relatively stable market right now. I mean, we know that at least a hundred or so models are in the pipeline over the next three years, and and those plans, of course, aren't just going to get scrapped all of a sudden. Uh, so that so that market is protected in uh, the short term, but in terms of you know level three or, or level four, um, obviously the investment and timeline for for development for those those technologies is long. And so, you know, we might, we might see uh, some, some delays or postponement of, of looking at things like that. One thing that we're seeing a lot of now is sort of a shift toward delivery as a use case for autonomous vehicles. And um, I know that Pete, you're seeing some of that as well, aren't you? Yeah, I would definitely say that uh, that is one trend we're seeing, be it uh, ride-hailing companies like Uber and Lyft shifting more resources toward delivery, or some of the dedicated delivery companies like Neuro, um, you know, in recent weeks, I think, as we've talked about, have gotten uh, permission or a permit from the California DMV to deploy uh, their special delivery vehicles on roads. Uh, we're seeing, you know, even globally, a company like Yandex is is focusing on its sidewalk robot right now. So I think delivery is is a trend that uh, had started and may be accelerating even as some of these other uh, mobility initiatives pull back. Delivery, as a matter of fact, is one of these topics that we will explore with Cheryl Connolly, uh, Chief Futurist at Ford. And uh, we're going to take a quick break right now, and we will be back with Cheryl. Anticipating and preparing for tomorrow's complex issues can be a challenge. The automotive industry is one of highs and lows and everything in between. At Deloitte, we understand the challenges you face because we've spent years working in this industry. To gain timely insight and to keep apprised of changes in consumer behavior, consumer buying patterns, and overall consumer sentiment, check out the Deloitte Global State of the Consumer Tracker that provides global data to help keep you well-informed as you strive to keep pace with the fluid demands of today's customers. The Deloitte Global State of the Consumer Tracker tracks the responses of over 12,000 consumers across 13 countries. For the most up-to-date information, be sure to visit and subscribe at Deloitte.com. Joining us on the podcast now, Cheryl Connolly, Chief Futurist at Ford. Welcome, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. Thank you for making the time. Uh, 
kick this off. Tell us about your title, Chief Futurist, and uh, what should we or should we not assume from that? Ah, well, thank you. I love that question because when I tell people I'm a futurist, I tell you know they often scoff, they giggle, um, they they laugh outright, and usually it's followed by "Where's your crystal ball?" or a request for the winning lottery ticket numbers. Or sometimes people jut out their palm and say, "Like, can you read my palm and tell me what my future is?" Uh, I cannot predict the future, and so I get that I get the skepticism, but I often refer to the quote from. Henry Ford, who had said back in the day, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. And of course, that's a dilemma that still exists today. It takes two to five years to bring vehicles to market. And so every day, irrespective of where you sit in the company, you could be in marketing, product development, IT, you're challenged with this task of trying to anticipate what we can do to make people's lives easier to five years from now. And I don't know about you, but if anyone were to ask me outright, what's going to make your life easier two to five years from now? I'm like, I don't know what's going to make my life easier two to five weeks from now. So my job is to bring forth uh, stimulus, research, data, things that can help lead that discussion so that we can start to imagine a future that no one else has yet to imagine. I mean, that's where we think true innovation lies, is that idea about looking ahead and trying to anticipate change. So I, I guess more simply put, no one can predict the future, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't try because you can certainly anticipate it, at least be prepared for the unexpected. So that's a, that's a great segue into you know, preparing for the unexpected. Obviously, two to five years ago, no one could have predicted the, the situation we're in now with the coronavirus causing global upheaval. Um, how... How are consumers kind of reacting to this event that we're in right now? I think it's, you know, across the spectrum, it's difficult to say how people, you know, universally are responding. But I, I tend to be an optimist, and I feel like most of us are really resilient. You know, they're, that we are trying to live in this new normal. I, I um, feel somewhat guilty to confess that I feel like I'm living my best life. I mean, my husband and I have two teenage daughters. We're getting more quality family time than we've ever had before. We are having family dinners. Um, we're eating well, better rested. And I actually am busier at work than I've ever been because, you know, I, the time I used to spend uh, driving into work, trying to figure out what I was going to wear, putting on makeup, all those things, like they've cleared my calendar and left me more time to get things done. In fact, our house has never been more organized. Uh, hopefully we can all follow in your footsteps with, uh, with a lot of that. Uh, but, but good to hear and uh, you know, glad you're doing what you and your family are doing well. Are you, are you finding with the work that you're getting at, at Ford, are, are lots of people looking to you for kind of uh, answers to what this portends? What I do on a daily basis is I try to identify, track, or monitor trends. And when we talk about trends, we have a very specific definition in mind. It's based on values. So the three of us, we have our own unique set of values. And those values are established in our late teens and early 20s. And it doesn't matter how old you get, where you live, what lifestyle you adopt, or what life stage you might find yourself in. Your values stay pretty constant. But every now and then there are these forces coming from social, technological, economic, environmental, and political arenas 
that start to put pressure on our value system. They slightly tweak the way we might see the world. And those are the things we're looking for. And so we've been tracking trends and health and wellness has, has been a top of my trend for a very, very long time. Um, I think also this movement in kind of the context of growing mistrust, and this is something that's not new. We've been tracking uh, the declining trust for almost 20 years, right? But right now you see lots of headlines say, that say mistrust in business government media have never been higher. As a byproduct of that, individuals are uh, more resilient. They're taking action in their own hands. They're trying to um, navigate this space in a very proactive way. And so we take these types of trends and then we imagine the trajectories going, you know, up, down, right, left. We try to twist them and we write stories around them about how they might play out in the future. Because no one can predict the future. So if you tend to be optimistic and think everybody will live happily ever after, then you have to match that with a vision of the future where there's widespread collapse and suffering. And the, these are not predictions, but there are bookends for us to test our assumptions to say like, hey, the plans we're putting together, are they resilient enough to weather either extreme? And so we have talked about things like uh, global pandemic. Uh, in fact, in 2004, we talked about um, the economic global financial crisis four years, five years before it actually happened, particularly what it might mean for the automotive industry. Now, of course, we had some of the outlying details wrong. Uh, we thought avian flu might tip us into it. But when you start to explore these things, you see patterns. And it really kind of comes down to a numbers game because if you suspend your prejudices, your biases, and enter this space of anything is possible, then some of the things you imagine will actually play out. The trick is we never know which ones are the ones that will. So it's, like I said, it's about preparedness. It's helping the organization learn to expect the unexpected. And so I'd say we were already kind of, we were all very familiar with this space, and uh, we're using that tool now to kind of imagine how might this play out? What might it mean for business? Where will we find ourselves 5, 10, 15 years from now? And Cheryl, do you have any early answers to that question? Where will we find ourselves from a consumer standpoint? So the question always is, and this is, in some ways, this reminds me very much of the global financial crisis to the extent of anxiety and lots of speculation about what it meant for the marketplace as a whole. And there was this notion about when the economy came back. And, and I think it, it wasn't a question of if, but when, when the economy came back, how quick would we be to return to our pre-recession patterns after the recession. And we had said consum consumption will probably return, but our attitudes would shift. So it, you can see this probably most starkly in what happened to luxury at that time. Like up until the global financial crisis, luxury had become very opulent, ostentatious, almost in your face. And following the recession, displays of material wealth were met with wariness, um, suspicion, even contempt. People thought, like, what is it that you're trying to prove? And that's in the context of having to see high levels of personal bankruptcy, homes being foreclosed upon, government bailouts. And so people started to be much more inclined to um, 
move away from that type of personal expression. And likewise, if I take those types of learnings and apply it to where we are now, I think that, you know, it, it, as we see in Asian cultures that have long worn masks on a daily basis, I think you're going to start to see that adopted in a Western culture. I'm not saying it's going to be universal, but I think it will not be uncommon at all to find yourself on a plane or a subway or a train or walking down a crowded street and to encounter people months from now wearing masks, even if we are past kind of the hot zone of the epidemic pandemic right now. I guess that, that leads into a question I had for you, Cheryl. Does it matter if this is kind of like a, a short and severe, you know, kind of lockdown period, or if we have these kind of like rolling ebbs and flows of, of Corona, uh, you know, not so much what happens directly in the short term because of those things, but like over time, will that, you know, have an impact on some of those greater forces that you kind of recognized, uh, I think it depends, and I, you know, that's the, almost my answer for every question you present. It depends, but let me let me tease that out a little bit more. Um, one of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking about are generational cohort analysis. So again, that's tied to values, and it's the things that happen in your formative years, kind of create the imprints of your value system, and they stay with you for the rest of your life. And this, you know, we all know people who were raised in the wake of the Great Depression, perhaps it's your parents or your grandparents or even your great-grandparents. And you see that they never quite fully recover from it to the extent that they're very careful with their cash. They're all about delayed reward. I, my own father, I felt like, was the first of, like, the preppers in terms of hoarding food. So much of his early years were spent not having enough food on the table. When I was growing up, we had, like, a pantry filled that could feed like five months, you know, for, for a long extended period of time. And so what I wonder right now is the most impressionable generation, which is Generation Z, so those people 24 years and younger. Like, I have teenage daughters, and I think that this is likely to stay with them and shape them in ways that will be very distinct for the millennial generation. You know, the millennial generation were raised in a backdrop of economic expansion and growth, and because they had baby boomer parents, oftentimes they tended to echo a lot of their patterns. Uh, they were um, large, voracious consumers, but they also were savvy. They wanted uh, designer goods at discounted prices. I think that this upcoming generation will be forced to be a little bit more frugal, more mindful. We already see evidence about this. I mean, even before the uh, current climate, we've started to see that Generation Z was suggesting a lower inclination to pursue graduate degrees because they're looking at all these millennials that went before them and said, hey, you, you spent all this money on education and it did not guarantee you a, a rich, fulfilling career. And so they're starting to question those types of things. Likewise, though, if I back out of the age thing and you think about like, how personally affected are you by it? Do you know do you have a family member who was suffering from COVID? Did you lose a loved one in this? I think that those will also have a much lasting impression. Um, but the other thing that I think that I hope stays with us is a sense of community. Like I love like all the stories of goodwill and kindness and generosity that are coming forward. The actions of companies that are taking like Ford, like I, I think the way that we 
pivoted rapidly from no longer making automobiles to saying, okay, how can we help? We find ourselves in this unusual position of actually uh, creating personal protection equipment. So we actually, in our assembly plants, can assemble face shields um, one every 10 seconds uh, in cooperation with our Troy manufacturing facility. And so it's just a, it, there's this nimbleness and I think um, generosity of spirit that we're all in this together and everyone's doing their part. And I, I love that. That hits on something that you mentioned in your global trends report uh, in December, and that's this shift from uh, a kind of a product based to, to value based in the minds of consumers. And I would imagine that Ford helping in this time of crisis like this, producing uh, personal protective equipment uh, reflects the values of the company. And maybe that's something that resonates with consumers for, for many years to come. I think so. And I would actually say there was definitely evidence of this long before we got into the current crisis. For years, we've talked about something called ethical consumption. And basically, we were saying in the context of unprecedented choice, uh, that consumers could not just be concerned about price, quality, convenience, and service. There was a new and. They wanted to know what were the virtues of the product? What were the values of the company behind it? And what did it say about me when I chose to do business with you? And sometimes we did this in very purposeful ways. Um, and other times, you know, we were totally unaware of what we might be supporting. But we look at the companies that kind of built their models around this. So you think about like Patagonia, um, Tom Shoes, the Buy One, Give One campaigns of Warby Parker. These are brands that infuse social issues into their business model. But what we called out for 2020 and beyond was a shift where companies increasingly didn't have a choice. They found themselves in the middle of hot button political, cultural, or social issues. And how those companies responded uh, were really informative to how the, the goodwill or the identity of their brand. And so there's this notion from a marketing standpoint that every company needs to know where they stand before they're called to stand. And I think that uh, as a Ford employee, I'm really proud of our history in this space. So not even just specifically to the, the health crisis, but things we were doing in the environmental space. So even as the country moved away from the Paris Climate Accord, we said, we're gonna still build to that. You know, we, the uh, double down that we've done on electric vehicles is also kind of a thing that we see as an important part of our future. And that's done largely in part by the commitment that Bill Ford has to the environment. But he has, a, a, you know, uh, he says he has two passions, automobiles and the environment. And he has spent much of his career trying to reconcile the two. And I see that reflected in a lot of the stands that the company takes. When you see companies that are so flexible and so willing to adapt to change, does that have an effect on consumer confidence? Does it make them more confident in these companies? I think it does. I mean, it makes me, it's, it's interesting. One of the first commercials I saw uh, in the wake of the quarantine came from Burger King. And if I remember correctly, I'm going to paraphrase it, but they said something like, you're probably not thinking about Burger King right now, but we're thinking about you. And so we're trying to develop a way to do touchless delivery of our food. 
And I just, I thought that was great. And then over time you see it evolving. And now we're supporting nurses. We're providing free meals to them. And what I loved about this is that as people started to share these stories, other people jumped on the bandwagon and said, what can we do? I mean, very early on Ford had said, and, and they were, I think they were borrowing from models that we did during the global financial crisis. But we said, how do we allow people to still have access to personal vehicle ownership in this situation? And they said, well, um, we're going to postpone the first three months of payment, and then we'll pick up another three months of payment on behalf of the customer. So you don't have to pay anything until you're, set, until you're beginning the seventh month of ownership. And I think that it's this type of elasticity, the creativity that comes out of it, you know, is appreciated for those people who are in need and are uncertain about what the future holds. I think it shows a real level of empathy and intuition about what the marketplace needs when brands take a stand like that. Now, um, Cheryl, you mentioned contactless delivery, and that sort of um, helps us segue into another topic. I know that last year, for example, Ford demonstrated this robot. It had this uh, green robot with legs. It was like a headless human being, and it was delivering packages. It was showing how you can use delivery technologies and really sort of ramp them up. And I'm wondering, uh, is delivery a big winner in in this mobility space right now? And have we seen delivery services start to trend within the past year or so? And are they going from a convenience to more of a necessity now? Yes. I mean, those are one of those things, like up until this moment in time, I had never had um, grocery delivery or grocery pickup. But goodness knows, there's no reason for me to return to that after, you know, after the quarantine is lifted. I I think that we had seen an appetite for people trying to find ways to give back their time. And if that means, you know, uh, hiring a house, uh, somebody to clean your house for the day, um, to have someone prepare your meals, or now these new extension of services that have expanded so widely, uh, delivery will be an important part of it. And yes, Ford has invested heavily in terms of uh, trying to understand what the future of delivery looks like. I mean, we, one of the questions that we have is, you know, what will most influence how and why people and goods move in the future? And with autonomous vehicles on the horizon, the notion of uh, how how packages or parcels get from point A to point B have long been an interest of ours. But in the context of touchless delivery, it becomes more pressing. Cheryl, I'm curious. You know, obviously, delivery, whether it's autonomous or, or now, uh, you know, done by humans currently. Uh, how how is transportation changing overall? Obviously, we're we're at a standstill right now with uh, most people sheltering in place and airlines not flying anywhere. But how how might this moment in time influence kind of long term trends on on transportation modes that uh, consumers choose, or you know how they how they shop for cars? Well, let's talk about how people move first. Um, I think, you know, Americans are hungry to get back to work and back to play. And as the summer approaches, many families will look to what, you know, what are we going to do for the family vacation? Then you can imagine most of those people that had historically uh, taken planes are going to have to reevaluate what that looks like. And 
the airlines will come back, no doubt. But I think that the rigor of pre-boarding will change. I mean, there will, in addition to kind of checking their identity and passport or all the other necessary paperwork, they'll now be looking at what's your current mental um, state. And that's going to slow things down. And so I think that some people might actually opt to say, okay, plane's not going to be our best choice this year. You might see a rise in the demand for trains. Uh, and I'm talking about like cross-country, interstate trains, uh, to the extent that, generally speaking, they're, not, they're rarely at capacity like an airplane is. Um, you also have some other things like the windows open. And that might give people a little bit higher level of comfort. So we could see people moving there. But I think lots of people are going to say the car, the personal vehicle, is going to be an option that will hold uh, unique appeal in this post pandemic world. And I think people will enjoy the ride um, even more. And for us, that's interesting. I, I, I'm going to pivot for a second because we talked a little bit about loneliness. Um, loneliness was a trend that we were tracking, uh, that we started tracking last year. And the numbers in loneliness are, are shocking and staggering. I mean, take Japan, for instance. Before the current pandemic, there were over 500,000 people under the age of 40 that had not left their home or interacted with another individual in six months time. And the World Health Organization had been saying loneliness was an epidemic. And the problem is that loneliness doesn't just make you feel bad, it's bad for you. The former U.S. Surgeon General said it's the health equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day or chronic obesity. So the numbers are, are worrying, and in our, I think our survey said 36% of the Americans we talked to said they're lonely on a weekly basis. And what's shocking is that 62% of young people, so people 24 years of age and younger, uh, say they're lonely on a regular basis. And over half them say they're lonely even when they're around other people. So this is something that I think will be in the marketplace for a very long time in kind of society. And of course, the, the social isolation that comes with quarantine will have been an accelerator in that. But interestingly, bringing it back to um, travel, our research showed that half of the people we spoke to in 14 different countries said some of their best conversations take place in road trips, that this is a powerful time to connect with people. And so I, I think about those two things coming together and, again, think that that'll be a silver lining that we'll all take away from this, is that, you know, hopefully we find more opportunities to connect and deeper modes of connection. But at the same time, Cheryl, people are saying that there's not going to be as much sharing of transportation. So how will these work together? I'm, I, I, as a mom, a married mother of two, I tend to default to the family uh, version of that. But you're right. I mean, there. I think we had seen a pattern that suggested uh, mass transit was becoming a desirable choice to many, particularly those who live in really congested cities where um, traffic is one of the hardest parts of their day dealing with the daily commute. In fact, I think we, a couple of years ago, we found a, an article uh, that said Americans spend more time, like 300 plus hours a year in their daily commute, stuck in traffic. And that was 
twice the amount of time that the average American had in terms of vacation. And so, yes, commute is going to be a really big problem. And those people are trying to alleviate it by doing ride sharing, um, taking the subway, trains, any sort of public transportation. I think even buses will have to reevaluate this. Unfortunately, some people won't have the financial resources to opt out of it. And so you can expect all of those organizations that operate those things will have to be dealing very proactively with what they do to disinfect and keep a clean environment. But I could I could imagine that those people who have a choice saying, you know what, it's time to move away from these mass transit and maybe it's time to get my own car. And more broadly, what about the idea of mega cities? I mean, that was the buzzword a few years ago. How does COVID change this whole prospect for the mega cities of the future? Um, do we see people wanting to escape to less dense urban spaces or less dense spaces in general? Mm-hmm. So I think mega cities are still going to happen. I mean, because to the extent that we have 7.8 billion people on the planet today, and by 2035, that number is going to grow by 1 billion. And so those people are going to have to live somewhere. But it's not likely going to be in the United States. I mean, that we are actually, our fertility rate is down. And so uh, megacities are going to happen where, where you have uh, higher levels of fertility, and that's going to be Africa as well as parts of Asia. And that's where you'll start to see the megacities form. I think that will be part of an economic necessity as you service the needs of those communities. In the United States, we only have two megacities. We have New York and L.A., and it really depends on how you draw the boundaries because a megacity is 10 million people or more living in the city center. Those are cities, though, that are are really going to have to figure out um, how people live, play, and move. I think that many people are finding that working remotely actually it has not really caused me to miss a beat. And so I think there will be people who will not necessarily need to live near work. It could change the dynamics of city living where lots of people generally historically have moved to the city for economic opportunities, for jobs that they want to pursue. But if remote working, it takes a leapfrog in terms of adoption following this moment in time, uh, yeah, you could start to see people moving further and further out from city centers. Will remote working make us feel even more lonely? <laughs> Let's say you don't see your colleagues physically at work uh, anymore. Yeah, I, I still, you know, these see, being able to see um, your face, Paul's face as we talk remotely, like that's really helpful to me. But it's not the same as sitting in the same room. I, I'm someone who draws a lot of energy by the people around me. Uh, and I think I'm not alone in that because people talk about how happiness is contagious. And so that is part of the reason we're wired to try to be with other people. Um, the tools that we have are getting better and better to, to get to it. But I, I think there's no substitute for face-to-face um, interaction. So I, it may not happen as we won't take it for granted like we used to. Cheryl, I'm curious. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about loneliness uh, in this super connected world. Uh, you know, we've talked about people feeling overwhelmed overall was one of the kind of other big conclusions of the uh, 2020 outlook. Uh, it, it seems like there's these underlying factors that, that COVID hasn't necessarily changed, but like it, it, COVID is amplifying these underlying trends. And that's 
that's very uh, interesting to see looking into your research, I guess. What, what should we make of that? I really like that question, Pete. What I think is interesting, and it wasn't in this year's trend book, but we covered it a couple of years ago, and it was called the edge of reason. And unfortunately, it's a, it's a worrisome trend on a social front. And what we were talking about was polarization of ideals and values that in our research show that two-thirds of the people we surveyed around the world said that they were overwhelmed by changes taking place in the world. Uh, and what we found is that research also suggests that people were less willing to enter into debate, to compromise. And, and we've seen this historically in politics, but I think coming out of, out of this context, when we work our way out of the COVID-19 uh, social isolation and quarantine, there's great debate about like, are we making the decisions at the right time? How do we balance the needs of the collective health of society against having an economic engine that allows people to live a rich, healthy, happy life? And so what is, I think, tragic and from a trend standpoint is that not only do people disagree, but when they find that they disagree, it's not a, it's, there's no polite discourse or debate about it. It's, well, you're, you don't share my point of view, so you must be a bad person. Like we associate it so much to our values and it's really undermining that, the constructive art of compromise. Um, even understanding, like I, I think loneliness isn't as much about being your proximity to others. It's about feeling understood. Like if you feel understood, then you're less likely to feel lonely. It's when you're surrounded by people who don't get you that don't appreciate your point of view, that are unwilling to hear what you have to say or see you as an individual with a unique point of view is when you feel the loneliest. loneliest. But the good news is, is that every trend has a counter trend. And so this notion of um, the edge of reason where two thirds of the people said that they were feeling overwhelmed by the changes taking place in the world, that same year, three quarters of those same people said that they still believed in their individual ability to bring about positive change. And so I love that. And I think that we see that now, like there are moments that you can feel really helpless in terms of this environment, but people are doing small things, you know, buying meals for uh, first responders, whether it is the paramedics, the police force, the people in the emergency rooms or all healthcare providers at this time, um, even in retirement homes. Uh, I, my own daughter took, you know, when before school had resumed, took to making get well cards for COVID patients and dropping them off, you know, at somebody at, at the outside of somebody's home that uh, could then take it into a hospital. So these things, I think, also are really important creative ways that we alleviate that pressure, the internal feeling of like, you move away from feeling helpless because you said, I did something. I contributed big or small ways to make the situation a little more tolerable. One thing that I'm wondering about is you talked about, you know, what a futurist is and isn't. So how did you get into this business of forecasting the future? (laughs) As I understand, you you practiced law at one point in your career. I did. I was a lawyer for about a minute. I tell people I practiced just long enough to know that I made a horrible mistake a really expensive, lengthy mistake. Um, but I also say that I don't regret it because that's where I met my husband in law school and he doesn't practice law either. So I like to tell him that it was a very expensive dating service. Um, 
So yes, I am. I came of a generation. Uh, I'm a Gen Xer, which means I was raised during a recession. And so, when I was younger, I studied finance and couldn't get hired um, upon graduation from college. So I went to law school, and a lot of other unemployed high school graduates did the same thing. So the job market was already over capacity, and so I decided to hedge my bets and get my master's at the same time. So I spend my I would spend my days going to law school and my nights going to business school. And lest you think that I am an overachiever, I'm not. It was really all about just hedging my bets. What can I do to make myself marketable so that somebody will hire me? And the very, the very first job I landed when I completed law school was as a secretary, a, um, a legal secretary in a law firm. And I did that until I passed the bar. But Again, early on, I knew that that was a mistake. So I sent my resume to a couple companies, including Ford, asking if they would consider me for a position in tax compliance. Uh, I have no burning passion for the tax code, but I thought that it would make me irresistible to finance the law, the MBA, and uh, it did not. Ford um, pawned my, my resume from the finance department over to marketing and I found my first job with Ford as uh, a customer service rep answering the 1-800 line. Wow. And then much to my horror, I found myself wholesaling cars to dealers. And I never saw myself as a salesperson. And I don't know all that much about cars. And so I, I thought this, isn't, this is not going to bode well. But the dealers were kind and patient and taught me literally everything I know about the industry today. But... Along the way, I just had this unexpected opportunity to join the trends team, and I didn't know what they did, and so I learned on the job, which is, a, I guess, a very long-winded way of saying that anybody has the ability to think like a futurist. I mean, once you start, once you start kind of fine-tuning your perspective, you'll see evidence of trends everywhere you look. And I can't think of a better way to end the program. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you. Uh, thank you again to Cheryl for joining us on the podcast for what I thought was a, a great conversation. I'm curious, Leslie, you know, we talked a lot about macro consumer trends. So uh, I want to take this to the micro here. Uh, I'm curious about your personal consumer habits. How have they changed in the short term? And, and what do you see for yourself changing uh, over the long haul? Well, the main thing that's changed for me is obviously I'm not driving right now, except uh, I'm only a few occasions in the last month have I been in my car. So uh, the use of personal transportation has gone way down. Um, I haven't bought gasoline since sometime in early March. And um, on another note, I am one of those people who's gotten used to these grocery delivery services, Pete. I have these groceries delivered several times a week it seems and lots of uh, packages from Amazon I really don't get out and go to the stores right now you know because Michigan is under this uh, stay home stay safe um, order right now so I think that we're going to get used to the convenience of having these delivery services uh, coming right to our doorstep 
And I can't wait for the time when there's going to be a robot or some kind of a, a little cooler going down the street. I think that would be interesting to see if that happens. Yeah, I think that uh, I have, in a way, we've been using some of the grocery delivery services for for at least a year now. And in, in a weird way, I've kind of gone in the opposite direction with that, if only because it's really hard to get a a, wind, a delivery time and a window uh, since so many more people are are using the services. Uh, but one thing I've noticed we've done is, you know, it's kind of like one big purchase or one big run rather than, you know, jumping up to the grocery store to, to grab milk or eggs when we need them. We're instead kind of waiting just to, to limit our exposure to the outside world. And I, if some strange way we're saving money uh, overall doing that. So I think that we will continue to, you know, maybe make one big, um, trip or one big, you know, delivery order as opposed to lots of small ones through the week. Uh, Alexa, how about you? What's, uh, what's changed or not on your end? I agree with you uh, both about uh, certain behaviors changing. I mean, I think, you know, tagging along with what Leslie said, uh, I've obviously been driving a lot less over the last, you know, almost two months now. Um, and I don't expect to return to the office anytime soon, you know, even if uh, stay-at-home orders are lifted here in Michigan or or even if things, you know, start to get back to normal, I think there will be a lot of things even within the newsroom, uh, such as, you know, distancing and such that we'll have to adhere to. And so um, I don't necessarily see a return to the office very soon. And, and of course, that's where, when I do most of my driving is, you know, to and from work. So uh, that'll certainly change. Um, and as for, as for deliveries, I haven't quite gotten on the bandwagon in terms of, uh, ordering from, from one of those services. But I think, you know, again, as, as, uh, there are changes, um, in place, uh, once we come, you know, to the other side of this, uh, crisis, um, you know, grocery stores might be limiting even more so, uh, how many people come into the store. And so you might, uh, have no choice but to to go with some of those services if you can um, instead of having to go uh, to the physical store. So I uh, I would expect to to you know maybe give those a shot at some point, but I've uh, somewhat avoided them until now. So we All shall right. see. I would say one thing is we've uh, one trend is we've been recording the podcast via Zoom the last few weeks, and and that will continue. And uh, we will be back the, in, a, in a week, if not less, with another new episode. Uh, so thank you for listening today and, uh, and stay tuned for more very soon.